Now, here's your host of Sound Off, Brad Bennett. I'm back, Northlanders. Here on a, uh, I'm back here on a Wednesday morning, but uh, but more importantly, we have in the house. Well, we have with us on the air this morning our uh, friend Peter Wood who is uh, Let the Sawdust Fly, uh, lead uh, guy, mouthpiece, uh, selling, uh, telling us all, helping us uh, on what's going on in the wood industry. And Peter, you've got some special guests today. I'm going to let you introduce your guests. Well, thanks, Brad. Folks out there listening, thanks again once again to let us in your house in the arts so we can talk about the timber industry. And, and uh, yeah, today we have with us uh, Donna Bergstrom and also Ron Wacka from Wisconsin Menominee Tribe, and we're going to be talking a little bit about in the past of what happened, took place with uh, with the tribal land and that. And with that, I, w- I would like to start out by talking about, folks, uh, some thoughts that I've had that you can think on during the show, if you could think on this a little bit. And that is is that the Sequoia National, the Sequoia trees, how did they come about? When you When you look at those trees, I've seen them one time in my life, you drive up this two-lane road up into the hills, and you drive and drive, and when you get there, you think, oh, these impressive trees. And, and as you drive from the bottom up, the trees at first are like, this is it. This is nothing impressive. And you keep driving. And as you drive up that hill, you get a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. You think, yeah, these are okay, yeah, yeah. But when you get to the end of the road and you stop and you see that General Sherman tree, 44 feet out diameter at base. 130 feet up, there's a 9-foot limb that sticks out, and it looks like a normal branch. And you look at these trees, there's three of them together, and the General Sherman's in the middle, and it's the biggest one. And your jaws kind of drop, and you're just looking at this thing in awe, like, this looks fake. It's so huge, it's so thick of bark, you think it's fake. <clears throat> How did those trees get to be like that? They... From what I've gathered, what I've read, and understand, those are three to thirty-six hundred-year-old trees. Some are right in there. Thirty-six hundred-year-old. Three thousand to thirty-six hundred-year-old trees. That's how old sequoias are. How did they get there? So they had to start somewhere. They had to start growing at one point. Now all the conditions are right. Yeah, there was. They said fires came through a little bit, but they didn't couldn't penetrate the bark. Well, out in that area, when you're looking at these trees, they're so magnificent, so beautiful, and I believe those need to be protected. In order to protect those, you have to manage and take care of the land around even 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles away. And that's what has happened just lately is where they didn't do that. And some of the, not as far as I know, the General Sherman didn't get hurt. But there's some sequoias that did burn pretty good out there, quite a bit, quite a few. Well, that's what happens when you don't manage it. How did those trees get that old? My thought is, folks, is that there was Native Americans that were managing the forest for thousands of years because every so often vast forest fires come through, supposedly, and fry up the ground. Those trees never got burnt. There's no way. They could go that long without a devastating fire coming through. So they had to be managed somehow for thousands of years. 
and I'm hoping to find somebody out there that has uh, lineage and verbal where it handed down through generations of what took place with the sequoias because they're so massive. And if I would have brought this up 10, 15 years ago, people would look to you like, what? What the heck? But with us today, with Ron out in Menominee, just northwest of Green Bay, Wisconsin, folks, Ron has records of what they have done. And then some is written and some is verbal. But then you can get a perspective. This is what was done here, but it was done other parts of the nation where Native Americans were managing the forest for what they could do. It was very well practiced. And, and, and Ron, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing? <laughs> Good morning, Ron. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Thanks. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, would you like to elaborate on some of the history? Could we go down that road a little bit there, Ron, on some of your history about uh, the Menominee tribe? Sure, I'll, I will. Like like Peter was saying, we have we have written, we have documented events. Um, we also have the oral history that we 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 rely on, um, and some of the traditional knowledge that was that was used and applied on the forest for for our ancestors for many generations to use and understand the use of fire, how they were using fire to manipulate certain parts of the forest, um, certain parts of the landscape for their use. You know, it could have been anything from travel to gathering um, production, berry production, or, you know, just, just in general, like keeping it open, you know, the Menominee were hunter-gatherer society. So that was a big part of how the how the tribe managed their their land, and uh, it was important to them. And they understood it. They understood how the fire, how it affected what they were doing. So it's a big part of the forest that we manage today. You know, the influence fire is here. I mean, it's in some of the stands that we manage today. So. It's a big part of it. Um, we understand it, and we, you know, we, we go around and explain that to um, when we do outreach stuff and explain why we're burning, you know, as actively as we burn um, today. And I'll get into some of that later about our program and how we how we're using fire today on our forest. Well, Ron, I I think one of the things you're indicating there, and and I think it's rather interesting. We don't talk about it enough. Is that Native American tribes do write down a certain amount of stuff and pass it on in written form, but more often than not, they pass it on from one generation to another generation in storytelling and in uh, and telling from father to son, from daughter to mother, that kind of thing. So maybe, you know, when we come back, we've got to take our first break here, but maybe when we come back uh, after this break, we can talk a little bit more about the story of of how to take care of the forest and how that was passed down from father to son to son to next son all through generations and why that's so important. So let's take this first break and then we'll come back with Ron from the Menominee Tribe over in uh, Wisconsin. We'll be right back. I want to go back to Ron from the Menominee Tribe. Ron, we were talking a little bit about how with Native Americans, I, I happen to know this because my wife is a member of the Turtle Mountain Tribe out of North Dakota. And and she tells me all the time that a lot of times the history of tribes 
are not necessarily written down. A lot of times they're verbally passed on from one generation to another. And do you see that happening even in how to take care of the forest and how to take care of logging? Yes. um, We have, you know, like the oral history that we that we're able to write down um, from from years ago that was passed down to mention some of the things that you talked about. Um, it, it it's it's important that we not lose that. You know, getting it getting it from the oral, the old, very old ancestors down to generations of oral history is, is important. But to capture it and uh, and to get it. To keep it alive and going uh, to our generation is important. So some of it has made its way down in, in all different areas, not just med, um, burning or, or managing the land, so to speak, but in, in all aspects of our culture, you know, our language, um, everything that we do is important. So, yes, that's what, that's what really sustains the tribe and our culture. Um, is keeping keeping the oral history and the traditions and the traditional knowledge, passing it on from generation to generation is very important. Well, I know uh, we have. Uh, go ahead, Ron. I'm sorry. I'll say is Donna on this morning. I would like to if, if her her input uh, or her take on it would be valuable as well. I think. Well, me as well. Except for, I have to ask Donna for one thing first. Uh, Donna, I've been standing at attention for the last 30 minutes here. So could you give me one of those marine at ease, I'll be in the area all day kind of thing? (laughs) At ease, marine, I'll be on the air all morning here with you. So take a seat. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, good morning, Brad. Good morning, Ron. It's great to be here again with Peter. (laughs) Topic to be talking about, too. So very timely, as I always say. Um, but I did want to just jump in here because I was telling Peter earlier that in the Ojibwe culture, which is my culture, you know, storytelling is a very important art, and our storytellers right. were very revered. Yep. So I thanked uh, Peter for being a storyteller um, for our times. But, um, yeah, storytelling is one of the ways that we pass down our teachings. Um, in many different areas, from one generation to, to the other generation. And so that was very important, especially in, in the ways that we needed to upkeep our culture and our tradition. And one of the stories that I love, track it down specifically to the exact relative, but I remember um, my mother talking about one of her relatives who was a log roller. And I don't know if people even know what that means, but, you know, in the older days, um, the way they got the logs down to the mills was they floated them down the river, and they right. they got jammed, they got jammed up, especially up in um, like the Clearwater River and some of these other rivers that have you know all rivers have bends, but they would get jammed up and they needed something someone to go out there and and uh, unjam the logs, and so I I believe I had a relative that did that, and um, that was a very dangerous job. You know, those logs were packed in there tight, and if you fell through, of course, 
you you know your chances of making it weren't very good. So I am always in awe, and I guess especially at this time of Thanksgiving, I'm so thankful that um, you know my my grandmothers and grandfathers you know navigated the world in the way they did and allowed me to be here, um, and how just precious it is that I'm able to tell this story um, of of this part of our history where you know we were part of the logging industry too, and. Um, and uh, I'm able to share that story here and, and talk about the people that helped bring that about. So it's a good tradition, and I appreciate it. And I'm glad to, to be here with Peter and to be listening to Ron's stories, too. It's great to share this information. Well, Don, well, all three of you, this is Brad again, all, all three of you, maybe you can talk a little bit about when when did the logging uh, changed from that kind of a format. In other words, when I was a young boy, I remember going on a trip around the Great Lakes. And when we were up in Canada, we took pictures of exactly what you were talking about, Donna. We took pictures of logging operations where the 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 rivers and lakes were full of logs. And these guys were out there moving them around with their feet. And then at some point, they decided... You know, that was uh, kind of time-consuming to get logs to the market, uh, to, to where they had the mills, and they started carrying them uh, by logging trucks and stuff like that. But do you know about when that changed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and I'll just say, you know, I'm using history from Red, the Red Lake Nation, but basically, you know, I think it was um, common throughout Minnesota in, in particular that when the railroads came, um, they were able to move from the rivers okay. to the railway. Sure. So, yeah, sure. right around um, 1908, um, you know, was about the last time that we had stories in Red Lake about riding um, the rivers. But, um, yeah, that was the tradition there. And I'll turn it over to Peter because I think he knows more about where it went from there. Um, as far as mechanical and that, yeah, I would have to say back in the late, right after World War II, because there became such innovation of making life a little bit better, better, nicer, easier. So I would have to personally say that in the 40s and 50s is when the real transition went from kind of like using horse to using equipment, using innovation, where they started actually putting loaders on trucks and hauling wood that way. So it was a lot easier. Ron, over in your part of the country, when do you think it was? For us, I believe it was in the 40s and 50s with all yeah, the that was going on. That's about the same. Yeah, about the timing was about right. And then we were, we were log, you know, the, the, the logging, we were still using Wolf River um, that runs through our reservation to log. The, the first sawmill we had was on by the by a falls on the river in Kashina and that the logs were still cut um, and, and put in the river and then at, in the rails, right? Um, Donna's right. Uh, we had from there, from about 19, early 1900s, we, we built a sawmill in the open and then it became more railroad spurs and bringing the wood back to the sawmill then. And then in the forties, like you said, it went more mechanized with, uh, with trucks and stuff to be able to haul, to the mill, so it's going all about the same time. Ron, uh, Ron on uh, some of your history now, if we went back in time, could you elaborate a little bit on what were the what were your three main markets back 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago? Because you've been in existence as far as Menominee way beyond that. 
And could you elaborate a little bit on that, like on the berries and how that came about, and then go to the syrup yeah. and then into the logs, would you? Sure, sure. Um, I, I was able, we had a, a book that was done on the forest, uh, the Menom- Forest of the Menominee um, author did it, did a lot of research. Um, I was able to find some information. Um, the 1885 revenue for the Menominee tribe was listed in there. And that was all that revenue was reported back to the to the government, but the number one in eighteen eighty five uh the, the number one was logs at about twenty thousand dollars and then then maple sugar uh four hundred and twenty dollars it was a, at eight cents a pound <laughs> and eighteen seventy speaks Eight cents a pound. I I didn't do the current value of it. Um, I I forgot to do that. But the 1870s peak production for maple sugar for the tribe, according to these records, yielded about 60 to 80 tons per year. And then uh, then there was furs. uh, There was fur was also included, and then blueberries. And and I'll mention blueberries. There was four thousand dollars in 1885. At three thousand bushels of blueberries at one dollar or one dollar and thirty cents per bushel. So <laughs> that's, that's in, one dollar a bushel. <laughs> we can't let this go. Three three thousand bushels, folks out there. Have you ever picked wild blueberries? You pick a gallon, and it's like, oh my, this is ridiculous. That three thousand bushels. I had to read it a couple of times to make sure I was reading it correctly. So, and then there's also a note. It's also noted in the in the report that after the forestry program was firmly established here on Menominee, uh, traditional forest products slipped into in, insignificance as income generators, but it retained a strong cultural significance. So, once we made that transition, you know, to the timber. This became more of a of a cultural significant for for families and for the tribe to, to gather this way. So, and at that sure. time, you know, it, it all kind of tied into the you know on the reservation and the taking fire out of the ecosystem. So we became so we had it more open. The the, the our ancestors had it established. So to produce to have this type of production, they were manipulating the vegetation with fire. Um, creating the landscape they needed to sustain themselves. So, and it, and it kind of, you know, with uh, with uh, taking the fire out of, of the of the ecosystem, um, we kind of became less fire prone here over the years. So, you know, more more shade tolerant uh, type of trees started to come in. So we kept the fire smaller. They were suppressed, um, and it became illegal to burn. Um, during those times, sure. so yeah, it changed. It changed the whole landscape, and a lot of it. And, and again, a lot of it that we're managing, a lot of stands we're managing today, are a result of that type of burning that was done. So, a very interesting. Well, listen, story. you guys. Uh, listen, you guys. We've got to take our Fox News break here, uh, but when we come back after the Fox News, let's talk more about fire and how that affected logging and the use of fire in thinning out areas and that kind of stuff. So we're going to go and take our Fox News break. I just thought you'd like to know that 3,000 bushels does equate to about 27,927 gallons of hand-picked blueberries at a dollar a bushel. (laughs) 
That's unbelievable. We'll be right back. Well, we're going to go back to Ron here. Um, Ron, we were talking a little bit about, uh, we just started talking about the use of fire. Now, I would assume that uh, tribes at some point came to the realization that uh, uh, if you've got an area, well, for example, I was reading recently the story of the Moose Lake Fire in Minnesota. Uh, that really uh, killed a lot of people, caused a lot of damage, came through that area. Very tragic fire. But it was caused because that particular summer was so dry and so hot that it caused a tremendous— and and there was a huge amount of trees, uh, much more than there are today even, and that caused uh, the— mixing of things to be just perfect to cause a fire to break off and then the winds picked up created their own winds so did did tribes at some point like menominee did you decide that maybe there's areas we have to thin out to keep the likelihood of a fire from from spreading uh or or how did that come into play yeah we had a similar wisconsin had a similar has a similar story with the about 100 years ago with the Peshtigo fire. I'm sure everyone's heard. It was the same type of after settlement and land clearing and a lot of logging was done. We had a similar fire that that burned a big portion of northern Wisconsin. So, yeah, we we have the same same stories down here. Um, we and on on our forest as well in the 30s and 40s. Um, there was we had we had thinnings and we had uh, logging going on in some of the pine stands and and some of the fires that we had were started from the rail from the rail spurs that were put in and the conditions were right so and looking at our at our some of our stands and that we managed today a lot of that was set back some of the bigger fires we had came back with aspen white birch and the early successional trees that that were still managing today so we're, we're looking at that landscape and, and putting some pine back in some of those areas so as far as thinning um you know we kept our forest management program going and we kept you know we thin it on a on a schedule um and an um, annual basis we take so much of the of the of the timber off our forest to supply our sawmill so that type of thinning has been done for for a couple of generations, um, and currently, um, any of the currently we use our fire program and our fire guys that work in our program to when we do thinnings like that, we do treatments. We do they're called fields treatments. We go in behind the logging activity in some areas, and we reduce that fuel load to minimize the impacts of fire um, post logging. So we're still doing it today. Okay. Cool. Well, the, the fire you were just talking about, the Pishtigo fire, burned about 1.2 million acres and is listed as the deadliest wildfire in recorded history with the number of deaths estimated around 2,000 people. 1871, I understand, right? 1871, and it was in October, I believe. And it was the same same conditions, very dry, very dry summer. Uh, fires were popping up all summer long in these in these areas that were cut over and then yeah everything lined up right in october and it, and it made that big push for over a million acre fire so um yeah wow. that, and the, the, they just had their anniversary up in festigo of that that fire um 
in the town of Peshtigo. So yeah, it was a it was a big fire, and it, and it was it was a fall fire when I from what I read. Now, how does how does a fire like that get controlled or stopped, or does it finally just burn itself out because of lack of uh, of product to burn? Yeah, I, I believe that's what occurred. It ran out of fuel. Um, eventually, hit hit breaks and that breaks, and eventually that fire was, was went out <laughs> more or less. So, uh, but yeah, we we do a lot of you know. So today, our burning our burning program here on the forest. Um, we did about we burned about a thousand acres um, here on the forest this year, uh, ranging the various use of fire from wildlife use to you know, the forestry use to um, just setting setting the uh, burn in and around our villages here to keep the, the fire danger down. So we do quite a bit of, of different types of burning here um, on the forest okay. currently. So, Ron, there's yes, one Peter. thing I, 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 can't, I can't let go because, uh, Ron, you want to explain who has uh, down in uh, Wisconsin State Capitol you have your state uh, Christmas tree there. Who is responsible for that, Ron? Oh yeah, <laughs> you didn't want to say nothing about the tree. But, uh, <laughs> the tree. The, the tree. Christmas you got to tell folks about that. He did. I don't think he wanted yeah. to talk about it, but I found out about <laughs> who's going to be throwing the switch for the Christmas tree at Madison coming up on the third of December. We uh, we were able to supply the the, the state capital um, with a Christmas tree and also the governor. Um, the oh, governor's same. mansion, I guess, with the with the tree from the forest. So, yeah, we are we are invited down to to that um, tree lighting ceremony that they have in the capital, and and um, myself and my son will be the one um, throwing the switch, I guess, to light the tree in the capital. So, I was I was in favor of someone else doing it, but uh, they wrote me into it, so we'll be heading down there December third and. And it's a it's a second time I believe we the the tribe has supplied the tree for the for the state capital. So that's that's pretty cool that we're able to do that type of stuff. Yeah, and, and no take kidding. A, take a tree out for. Well, Peter, great. listen, it uh, Peter, it has been a pleasure uh, having your people on again this morning. Uh, we're up against a hard break, so we've got to say goodbye and happy uh, Thanksgiving to everybody. I hope you'll have these people back again because we're learning more and more as time goes on about just how the forest has to be maintained. It has to be managed. It just doesn't happen on its own. And you know what? I think next time we have you back, we've got to talk about the fact that I've been reading recently that firewood is going up in price big time like i guess everything else but because people now are using it more and more as additional heating for their home because of the cost of fuel oil and gas and natural gas so look i hope you all have a beautiful thanksgiving uh, holiday season and uh, we'll be back uh, very shortly with more here on sound off in the morning it's the stuff. It's just insane around the country what's going on. People are talking about. I mean, what happened to law and order? This is WDSM AM 710 and FM 98.1. WDSM 710.com. WDSM time 957, 35 degrees in Duluth. And we might inch up a degree or two yet, but then things are going to turn around and drop and get colder. That's oh, all. Yeah. I, that's it's all I got. Get colder. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? 
tomorrow will be Thanksgiving and we can be thankful for what we do have and the good things that we have going on. We will be back uh, coming up with hour number three. We've got so much more to cover. So please uh, get some coffee. Come back. It's the last hour before Thanksgiving. And we're very thankful for all of you listeners here in the Northland. Northland.